So just as Abraham believed in the impossible, and he believed in something that he had never seen yet, that faith was counted as righteousness. And in Christ, we believe in the impossible. He rose from the dead. That's not possible. But in Christ, we believe in the impossible. And in Christ, we also believe in that which we have not seen with our own eyes. We have not seen the resurrected Lord yet. But we believe that we shall see him. It is still afar off, relatively speaking. But we believe that we shall see him. And this faith in believing in the resurrected Lord, the impossibility of that, believing that we shall one day see Jesus, whom we have not yet seen, this faith is counted as righteousness. Because God has said it, it has been reported by the apostles and others, and we believe it in our day, in our age, in our generation. So take heart. For more blessed are they who believe, having not seen. We are not at a disadvantage. Rather, we are recipients of more grace. (laughs) For we are removed many centuries from this. But yet we believe. We believe. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to talk today about the resurrection of Jesus. In John, the end of John chapter 20, which Brother Rich had just read, at the end of the chapter, John says, I'm recording these things so that you might believe and have life in his name. What is he recording? Not just the life of Jesus, but also the impossibility of the resurrection that he saw He was the disciple who outran Peter and entered into the grave. He saw the empty tomb. He saw the resurrected Jesus. And he's reporting it. He's testifying of what he has seen and what he has heard in hopes that we would believe. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is doing something similar. He's talking to the Corinthian church about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he is imparting to them his wisdom that if you don't believe in the resurrection, then your faith is in vain. You can believe in every other part of the scriptures. You can follow the morality written in it. (laughs) You can honor honor Jesus as a great prophet. But if you don't believe in the physical, rep- physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything that you've sacrificed, everything that you do believe is in vain. Because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have nothing. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Why is the resurrection so vital to the viability of our faith? But let's pray before we get into this. We need the Lord's wisdom. Lord, I pray that you would guide us in all truth. And that having not seen, that we might believe. And that having heard the testimonies of John, of Paul, and of others, that our faith would grow stronger today. 
that we would that our faith would be more informed more substantial and more fruitful because of your word because of the teachings of scripture these people testifying of what they have seen what they have heard in Christ and that we would be nourished to go forth believing in the impossible God so that we might go into a world that's impossible to reach and do so anyway. Lord, reveal to us the truth of your word. May, we, may it resonate, may it reverberate within us. May we never get over the resurrection of Christ and may we see its importance and not just a good story just another example of your power, but may we see it as the greatness of your power manifested in a way that belief in such is the very foundation of our entire faith. Strengthen us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. We're going to read a few verses. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrep misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And we're going to stop there today. I was originally going to keep going, but it just became too much. Um, well, we need to have a little bit of focus today um, so that we can, might perchance be able to retain some of this information and some of this wonder and excitement of the resurrection. But the Corinthian church, as we can deduce from the first couple of verses that we read, they had been um, infiltrated by some false teachers who have been teaching the teachings of the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, we can see in another portion of Scripture in the Gospels, did not believe in a resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in a spiritual reality for human beings. They believed in God, but they didn't believe in a spiritual enduring reality for human beings. Now, most of us in here probably don't struggle with that kind of false teaching, but that is the groundwork for why Paul is launching in to this sermon to the Corinthians um, that once a person's body dies, their soul dies along with it. 
whether righteous or whether unrighteous, whether they followed the law or whether they just kind of did whatever they wanted. In both cases, people were teaching them that every soul dies with the body, that there is no judgment or reward after death, that the moral code of law was given by God to allow men and women to dwell harmoniously together and therefore find happiness and success in life. But after that, all is gone. Now that last portion is something that many of us practically might be doing. Yeah, we might claim that there is a resurrection of the soul into a new resurrected body, but many Christians around the world are still living as though the law or the scriptures are only given to us so that we might live harmoniously together, so that we might find happiness and great success, and that we are not living in the anticipation of the resurrection of our own bodies. We are not living in faith in the resurrection of Christ's body and what all of that means. And these Corinthians were ignorant of the teaching of the resurrection and have given themselves to this, under, to this lifestyle of, well, we need to do what's right simply because it's the way of happiness and success. And we want to be able to say we're religious, I guess, because that's important. But for some reason, they had started to believe some of this teaching that, you know, this life is all that there is. <laughs> there is nothing more. So just do whatever it takes to make the most out of this life. That's what the law is for, just to help you to make the most out of this life. And really, I think that that does come into our lives sometimes. And the resurrection teaching helps us to see past all of that and to see the actual truth. And he says that in verse, in verse, that's verses 12 and 13 where he kind of introduces that concept of what the Corinthians had started to believe. That they didn't believe in any resurrection and now we're getting into this logical understanding that if there is no resurrection that not even Christ has been raised. And now he's getting into the implications of what is reality like for our faith, if Christ was never actually raised from the dead. Now he drives into verse 14, he says, if Christ, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And he says, our preaching. He's not just talking about his ministry with the Corinthians. He's talking about the preaching and the teaching of all the apostles. Everything that they've testify to of what they have seen and what they have heard in Christ, it's all pointless. Now he's, he's saying vain here. He's going to bring out the word futile in a few verses. But here, the point, and the point he's making are similar, but I believe that here he's more or less getting across the, the uh, essence that everything that they're doing is pointless if Christ has not been raised from the dead. There's no point to any of it. There's no point to them preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ because it all has to start with the resurrection and the belief that Christ has been raised and that he has been physically raised and that he lives today at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. How does the gospel hinge on that teaching? That's the point of today, and that's the point that Paul's trying to get across to the Corinthians. That if this is not true, it's all pointless, 
Everything that Paul had accomplished among them or the other apostles amongst all their people groups, it's all in vain. Not only that, but because their preaching is in vain, well, the faith that they've been preaching about, that's all vain too. Because we're simply believing in a dead corpse to justify us and redeem us and reconcile to God. If Jesus is still dead, lying in the grave, then there is nobody to justify us before God the Father. There is nobody to redeem us, to draw us out of darkness. There is nobody who's going to reconcile us to God because he's still dead. Just like all of the other false teachers that have gone before or have come after who still lie somewhere in a grave. And this is the way the old, you know, all the prophets in scripture have died. But why does their teaching remain? Why? Because they were testifying about Christ. They were preaching the word of a living God who endures throughout all generations. And that's what we do today. We testify of a living God, a living Christ, not a dead one. Death means the end. Death is not enduring. That's why you and I will have a resurrection one day in our own turn. But Christ, his resurrection shows us the endurance of his ministry. The endurance of his truth and faith in him. That it is for all generations, past and present. It is not in vain. It still means something. There's still a point. It is not pointless to have our faith in Jesus Christ. That's why John said, I'm recording this so that you might believe and have life in his name. How can we have life in the name of the dead? It cannot be. That's why the life of Christ is so important. Look at verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So what he's saying, if... If Christ is still dead, then you're talking to a liar. You're talking to somebody who has misrepresented God. And if you look over, perhaps it's on the next page in your script in your Bible, but in chapter 15, verse 30, he, uh, he picks up this, this part of the conversation by saying, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 30, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. <laughs> He's saying, why in the world have I been suffering all that I have been suffering if I'm lying to you and misrepresenting the truth just to get you to believe something that I want you to believe? Why would I, want, why would I go through everything that I've been going through in order to get you to believe something that doesn't really affect me one way or another, if you believe it. If I'm lying to you about all of this. All of Paul's work would have been in vain. All that Paul has suffered, all that Paul has sacrificed would have been in vain if Christ truly had not risen from the dead. And he says, logically speaking, it would be true then, in, ver in the end of verse 32, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. 
I mean, if this life is all that's to it, we might as well just do whatever we want, whatever makes us happy, whatever fulfills us, because there is no resurrection. This is it. This is the end. You might as well just do whatever it is you want. And that's what a lot of Christians are doing anyway. Whatever it is makes them happy, whatever makes them fulfilled, whatever fills their time, whatever makes them feel successful, whatever makes them feel loved and validated, just do those things because this life is all that there is. Just live for today. Make yourself a success. Go and make the money because this life is all that there is and you can't take it with you. <laughs> right? That's Paul's conclusions. If Christ has not been raised, it does affect how we live our life. But if Christ has been raised, that affects our life too. Are we living in light of the resurrection? Because it actually affects the way we live. If there is an afterlife that we're looking forward to, if there is a hope of eternal life, then that's going to affect how we live this life. And Paul is saying, my sacrifice is worth something because I know there's something coming up ahead. I know it. I have seen the resurrected Lord. I know that he dwells with God on high. We even see testimony of Stephen when he was about to die. The heavens opened and he saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father. He saw that spiritual reality of Christ, the living Christ, sitting next to the Father in the heavens. Stephen's work was not in vain. His proclamation, his martyrdom was not in vain. Because Christ lives. In our life, our sacrifice, everything we're doing should be in light of the fact that something's coming that's better than anything we can achieve now. Because there's life. There is a resurrection that's coming for even us. Because of Christ. We are not lying about what we are seeing. In verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. In verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is is futile, and you are still in your sins. Now, this word futile is very similar to the word that he used, vain, um, just a couple of verses up. And he says this in the sense that your faith is powerless. So before your faith was pointless, if Christ has not been raised, there's no point to it all. And now he's saying your faith, if Christ has not been raised, is futile, it is powerless. It cannot do anything for you. It does not redeem you. It cannot save you. And you cannot find forgiveness because of your faith. Because if Christ has not been raised, there is no forgiveness for sins. So you are still dead in your sins, he says here in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Your faith is powerless if Christ has not been raised. So in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see here that because he is raised, our sins are forgiven. Our sins can be forgiven because Christ lives. What did he do on the cross? He died for our sins so that now our sins have been paid. They have been punished. The justice that our sins demanded has been carried out on the cross but if there was no resurrection, what he did on the cross meant nothing. And those sins, that burden, still remains on our shoulders. So the cross has to be seen in conjunction with the resurrection. 
Because without the resurrection, the cross loses its power. Paul is arguing. So if Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins. Your faith has no power to save you from your sins. There's no cleansing, nothing. Because your faith does nothing if Christ is still in the grave. And then he goes on and says in verse 18, dealing with another aspect of of our lives. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Think about that. He's saying, if Christ has not been raised, just think about your loved ones. Your mother, your father, your siblings, your children, all who have died in the faith. They're gone. No more to be seen or heard. You will no longer, they're not in a better place. They're nowhere if Christ has not been raised. You will never see them again. You will never walk with them again. And honestly, for some of us who have lost loved ones who we know are in hell, that doesn't sound so bad because we don't really want them to be in hell. But that's not really the point either. But he's saying, he's making the point here, none of our loved ones are ever going to be seen or heard from again because if Christ has not been raised and there's no afterlife, then they're gone. They're already completely wiped from the memory of the universe. And in a way, he's kind of reaching to that emotional aspect of their souls, that relational aspect of their souls. That soul sleep, you know, it's just soul death. Everybody's gone when they die. So your loved ones, your husband, your wife, they're gone. They don't exist anymore if Christ has not been raised. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people, we are of all people most to be pitied. You know, pretty much every religion in the world has some belief in an afterlife, something that they can look forward to, something that they hope it can hope in, something they can at least work for in most religions. But if this, if this belief system doesn't include an afterlife, then we are so pitiful. We are to be, I mean, everybody else should, should look at us with compassion. We are to the most to be pitied. For there is nothing to look forward to. There is nothing that we will have when we die. Nothing for us, nothing to work for from their perspective, in a sense. If the only point of Christ's life and death was to give our life a boost in the right direction before we die... If that's it, if that's the whole point, then we're to be pitied above all people. But this false teaching renders its believers to be pitiful more than any, since it completely robs us of our hope. So with the resurrection of Jesus comes our hope. That's why Jesus had to rise from the dead, because it gives us hope of an eternal life. Now we're going to see a transition here between verses 19 and 20, where above we've been seeing that if Christ, it's all about what happens if Christ has not been raised. Now we're going to start seeing since Christ has been raised. What next? What are we supposed to believe since Christ has indeed been raised? Now let's look at verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised. He doesn't start reasoning like he reasoned before. He doesn't say, well, if Christ has been raised... No, he starts with an affirmative, but in fact, Christ has been raised. 
And now, what are the implications of that? He's not, he's not an apologist who's just kind of arguing logical points. He's taking occasion here to proclaim, in fact, Christ has been raised. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. This is not a quarrel. I've already seen Jesus. I've already experienced him. He's already transformed my life and given me a new name. How can I just say if? <laughs> How can I start this with if? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Let's start there, <laughs> Paul is saying. Affirming strongly. And then he says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What are the first, you know, from a farming perspective, what are the first fruits? It's the harvest is ready. The fields are ready to be, to be brought in. And the first fruits are that first portion that gets cut and brought in. Now, the first fruits in the Old Testament law were something that was to be sacrificed to the Lord. And in a way that is true, but let's just focus on the fact that he's, ta he's talking more or less like a farming, like a farmer. It's the first time he goes out and brings in the sheaves. The first time he goes out and brings in the fruit of the harvest. The first of much that is to come. And, Jesus, and Paul is saying Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Our loved ones are not dead. We will not die and just be dismissed from existence. No, Christ, his resurrection is the first fruits of much resurrecting that's about to happen. <laughs> He's the first one and all the rest of those in the faith, starting with those who have fallen asleep, are expecting a resurrection from the dead. And then he dives in in verse 21 to get a little more theological. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. And he tells us who that man is in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So we see in Adam in verse 21 came death. We're sunk into the grave because of Adam. Our spirit, spiritually speaking, we're dead. We're cast out. We are filthied because we are all generationally the ancestors of Adam. But because of Christ, there has come a resurrection from that. A reversal of Adam's damnation. The reversal of Adam's curse. Adam's sin was the first fruits of all generations of sinners sinning. He was the first fruits of everybody else's sin. When Adam ate from that, from that forbidden fruit, that sin was the first fruits of all the sin that would come after him. And he is the first prisoner of all those imprisoned who are in their sin, unable to be freed from their own guilt and from their own shame. Romans chapter 5 embarks on this for a little while. And I'm going to read through this quickly. But Romans chapter 5 says in verse 10, For if, we, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Okay, so because of the living Jesus, not only are we saved from our sins and brought into a right relationship with God, 
But that is going to be carried through into life eternal because Christ has risen from the dead and has been brought to life, being the first fruits of all others who will be brought to life in Christ. And then he skips skip down to verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so that death spread to all men because all have sinned. So we see again, death is here because of Adam. But where am I going with this? Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the great much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. Therefore in verse 18 it says as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness reverses that. It leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned to death, grace also might reign through through righteousness leading to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now if Jesus was going to come and reverse the effects of Adam which brought death. How could a dead Jesus reverse that process? What the point Paul is making in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Is a dead Jesus still remains under the curse of the death of Adam. So he had to rise in order to reverse the effects of Adam. Which brought death. Without Jesus rising from the dead, that there would not be a full reversal of Adam's curse in Christ. There had to be life to erase the death. Evil had to be overcome with good. There had to be a life if death was to be abolished. Otherwise, Adam's sin still reigns. Otherwise, the curse still dominates and will dominate continually. Now, for the sake of time, I'm just going to end with this one next thing. First Corinthians, back, back to 1 Corinthians 15, if you turned with me. He says, let's just continue with verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God and the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 with me real quick. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 11. He says, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest, talking about the Old Testament law in the temple, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time Those who are being sanctified. And then skip down to verses 18 to 20. Where there is forgiveness of these, talking about sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his death. Now let's stop there. We could keep going, but we're not going to. The conglomeration of these verses tell us this. In the Old Testament law, you had the continual offering of sacrifices. Why? Because blah, blah, black sheep, you bring the white sheep, <laughs> you, bring the, you bring the sheep to the priest, he kills it, and it's dead. That was killed to be a sacrifice for some sin or whatever the offering was for, but that sheep is now dead. Its ministry is over. It can't be offered again because it's dead. And it may have stood for something for that one moment that it was being slaughtered, but its, its death is not effective past that point. The effective value of that life was used up. And now another would need to be, to be brought to be sacrificed the next time there was a sin. That's why the Old Testament law was insufficient to save. And the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ could not produce eternal satisfaction for sin unless Christ remained alive. Because death implies an end. Life implies endurance. Especially when that life has conquered death. Being raised from it. Vain in the grave he lay. We just sang together. Vain. Death could not hold its prey. Because Christ has been physically raised we know not only that we are forgiven in this life, but that we also have a living advocate who will testify personally before the Father concerning our salvation and our justification. He is alive still at the right hand of the Father, the power of God sent to save, living to keep saving. He has not ended His ministry he has brought an end to Adam's condemnation. He has brought an end to Adam's curse. But his ministry of life will endure throughout all generation because he is risen and alive. We have somebody that we can look at and still pray to, pray in the name of, because he is standing next to the Father advocating on our behalf because we are a child of God because of his ministry of life. And because we have eternal hope and peace with God through Jesus Christ, we can now dwell in security of this hope, knowing that in our faith and life of faith are not in vain, but will result in eternal bliss and glory in Christ's name for all who believe. Isn't that phenomenal? Isn't that huge? All of this because Jesus raised. All of it because Jesus raised. And now, Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. In the temple, there was a curtain dividing the people from the presence of God. That was torn at the crucifixion. And replaced with his own flesh. 
If he was not given a body of flesh, there would be no curtain that we could pass through to enter into the presence of the Father. Jesus is that new curtain. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I am the curtain that you must pass through to get to the Father. And that's only possible because he was risen bodily. So that we can pass through his flesh to enter into the presence of the Father. We can only come boldly into the throne of grace because of Jesus. We can only pray because Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> we can only pray in the name of a living Christ. We can't pray in the name of a dead person. We pray in the name of a living Christ. That's why we don't pray through Mary. She didn't rise from the dead. We don't pray through the, through the apostles or other saints. They're dead still. They haven't experienced the physical resurrection that we all look forward to one day. We pray through Christ because he is risen. And he is the curtain that we pass through into the presence of God. And to close, I just want to read, ironically, an introduction that Paul gave to the Ephesians in chapter 1. It says in Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having, eye, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness and the power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, who, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And he's praying for these Ephesian believers, that this would be clear to them. All centering at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must dwell on the resurrection. We must cherish the resurrection. We must believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we must believe him to be the truth, for one can only rise from the dead by the power of God. So in Christ's name, in Christ's resurrection, we know that God has made him the Savior. He has lifted him up. He has glorified him. So to him we look to be saved. No other name under heaven given among men. No, we only look to Jesus because he's the one who has been raised up, glorified, set above all things. And we cannot look to another. We cannot look to ourselves. We have not been glorified. We have not been set up as a ruler and authority. We must look to Jesus. He is the one risen and glorified that we might have faith in the impossible and we might have faith in that which we have not seen with our own eyes. And that faith will be counted as righteousness before God. And Jesus will advocate for us on our behalf before the Father, claiming us to be forgiven children of God. That is our hope that we set in Christ our curtain through whom we come into the presence of God.
That is our hope that we keep before us. And in that hope, we live in the hope of our own resurrection, that Christ, being the first fruits, will deliver. He will deliver us personally to the Father, sanctifying us, purifying us, presenting us blameless so that He might present us blameless to the Father as His chosen bride, pure. So in Christ we stand, and, in Christ, and because of Christ's resurrection, we can thrive and have hope and faith. Let us look to him in all things. For he is the one who is glorified. Lord, we look to you. That you might open the eyes of our hearts. That we might long for the hope that is set in front of us. That we might chase after it. Just as Abraham left his home, left everything behind him so he might chase after a promise that he would not see in this life. And Lord, we leave everything behind us in faith of a home that is set before us that we will not see in this life. Believing, we believe in the resurrection of Christ who has gone before us in a similar manner that we shall rise one day and dwell in your heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, we look forward to such a promised land that we do not fully grasp or understand, but we look forward to it. Increase our joy, that your joy may be full in us. In Jesus' name, amen.